Hi, welcome to another session of the Potter's Roundtable from Washington Street Studios, coming to you from the home territory of the ghosts of Harper's Ferry. I'm Phil Bernberg. Today we're going to be discussing, today's topic is pottery mysteries, thixotropy, quartz inversions, and other pottery mysteries. And by that I mean these are topics and, and subjects that are not well understood or not well defined. Welcome to the Potter's Roundtable, a monthly podcast where we share our passion for the ceramic arts and a collection of topics specific to potters. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Enjoy the show. Okay, last time we were talking about the, the first episode of Thixotropy, Quartz Inversions, and Other Pottery Mysteries, and we finished talking about terra, with talking about terra sigillata. So we're going to move on with some terms that relate to later stages in the processing, of, of, in the normal processing sequence. So I'd like to talk a little bit about bisque firing. And actually, there's a related term that you may have heard. It's called biscuit firing. So there's biscuit and there's bisque. And there actually is a difference. Um, a biscuit firing is, the, is where the first, typically we do two firings when we're, when we're firing pottery or ceramics. We do an initial firing to harden the clay and turn it into a ceramic. And then we typically do a higher temperature firing where we actually are, are densifying the clay and getting the glaze to be mature. Well, a biscuit firing is actually where the first firing is at a lower temperature than the glazed firing. So a lot of times what we, at least in the United States, tend to call a bisque firing by this older, this, this, this distinction was actually a biscuit firing. And a bisque firing, the definition was that the first firing is actually a higher temperature than the glazed firing, which sounds a little strange, but actually it's, this process is used in, in the ceramic industry a lot because it has some real advantages. One of the advantages is, if you think about it, if I'm firing the clay to get completely dense and it doesn't have a sticky glaze on it, then I can support that piece in some kind of a form or with props or in some kind of a setter so that I can make very thin pieces that might, for instance, normally tend to sag or droop when I, when I high fire them. But now I can support them in some kind of a form and, and while, they're, while they're being fired so they won't droop. The second thing is that since we know that a lot of the defects that show up in pottery show up only after the high firing, this gives the, the manufacturer a chance to examine the pot after the high firing and look for defects. And he can eliminate bad pots then without having to go through the glazing process in the second firing. And if the second firing is a lower temperature than the, than the first firing, then the chances are there, nothing more is going to happen to the pot. I mean, you may get a glaze defect due to bad application, but you're not going to get cracks and splits and the normal things. So this, this, pro, this procedure, at least, regardless of what you call it, of having, this procedure of having the first firing be a higher temperature is actually used a lot in the commercial ceramics industry. Um, I'm not sure whether this, this distinction was originally a British terminology or not. I'm not sure where it came from. But of course, in the United States now, at least, we don't generally make this distinction. Oftentimes, if people are talking about it, we just call the first firing a bisque firing. And maybe you might specify, well, yeah, I did the bisque firing at a higher temperature or a lower temperature than the second or the glazed firing. But we generally do. So I don't hear this terminology used a lot. But I just wanted to mention it because it actually there is a distinction between these two, at least as originally intended. There was a distinction between biscuit and bisque firing. Okay. 
Let's talk. Next term I wanted to talk about is flux. And a flux, the general definition of a flux is a material that's added to something else to make it to, to lower the melting point. And for pottery, the, the main application we have of this is, especially for glazes, fluxes are added to lower the melting point of silica. All of our, just about all of our clays, or all of our clays and our glazes, the, one of the major constituents is silica. Remember, silica is SiO2, silicon dioxide, silica. And the problem is that silica by itself melts at over 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which is way beyond the, the, the ability of, mo of at least our pottery kilns to reach that temperature. And our, and our glazes, in fact, uh, particularly, are based on silica. So fluxes are actually used in glazes as well as in clay bodies to help the materials melt. In glazes, we want to get complete melting of the glaze. So we have to add enough flux to, the, to the, the, the silica, which is most of what the glaze is made of, so that the whole mixture will melt. Now, also, as a side, as a side um, effect, in addition to the, the fluxes causing the melting or helping with the melting of the silica, they also affect other properties. So the choice of flux, for example, can affect the colors and a lot of other properties of the glaze in addition to providing the melting. And like with a lot of things in, in pottery, Everything affects everything else. So this is particularly true of the choice of a flux. And in clay bodies, actually, we also include fluxes in clay bodies because we want, in this case, we want to get partial melting of the clay bodies. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in the next definition. But so glazes, we have enough flux to completely melt the, the glaze. And in clay bodies, we have enough flux or fluxes um, to partially melt the clay. We don't want it to melt so much that it starts to droop and sag or turn into a puddle, but we want, but the, the, as we'll talk about, the flux helps it, the, the clay get dense. So the next term that sort of that follows on from that, from the, the flux term, is vitrification. And I, you've probably heard this term used or thrown around. Um, but basically, the term vitrification means the formation of glass. And so with the word is generally used with respect to clay bodies, people will say, well, that clay body got vitrified, or it got fully vitrified, or it got partially vitrified. What they mean is that during the heating, part of the clay melted. And when it cools, the part that melted actually turns into glass. It doesn't, it, so that's where the vitrification term applies, that you're actually forming glass in the clay body, or some glass. And what the, by forming this, this melt, in the, this little bit of melt in the clay, it actually helps the clay get denser and harder than if it didn't happen. This is actually, there's actually a technical name for this. It's called liquid phase sintering. Liquid, just to throw in a little more science here. Liquid phase sintering. And all that means is by having a liquid, this melt, in the clay body, when you're heating it up, it actually speeds up the process by which the clay gets dense and hard. It, it goes faster and easier than if the liquid wasn't there. So this is a good thing. This helps our pots get dense. When you say a clay body is, and you'll hear this term, people say the clay body has fully vitrified, all they mean is that the clay body has gotten as dense as it can or as close to, close to as, as dense as it can. 
meaning that there are no holes or big pores or, or void spaces left in it. They don't mean that the body has turned completely to glass. Technically, if you said something was fully vitrified in general, you would mean that it completely changed to glass. We don't mean that. All we mean is that it has gotten as vitrified or as dense as it can, that, as that particular clay body can. Okay. So that's so that's yeah, that's that's where I think sometimes the confusion come in. People will say if people that, if they if they understand a little bit about vitrification, they'll hear somebody say, well, the clay body is fully vitrified, and they'll think that turned complete or there's a lot more glass in it than there than there is. There doesn't have to be a lot of glass in the body for the body to be quote unquote fully vitrified. It just means it got dense. Okay. The next next term I want to talk a little bit about is frit. Frit is a manufactured product. It's basically, it's commercially made, and it's basically a powdered glass, but it's a powdered glass that can be made with a very specific composition. So there are lots of different frits out there that have lots of different compositions. And frits are used a lot in industry, ceramic industry, mainly because they're very reproducible. They can, if they, if they want a certain ingredient for a glaze or a clay body, and they buy one of these manufactured frits, it's always going to be the same composition. The problem with using naturally occurring materials like a mineral is, if you have a, an ore deposit or a mineral deposit in the ground, even though you might say, well, it's all feldspar or it's all spodumene or something, that doesn't mean that the composition can't change quite a bit from one part of the deposit to another. So that as the mine is, is working and digging up the material, over a period of time, the composition might actually change enough that it could change the way it works. So, and of course, industry that's making hundreds of thousands or millions of objects, they can't stand, that would drive them crazy. They want to set up a production process and then just run it and not have to worry about changes on the fly. So they like really standard materials that don't change. So a lot, this is one of the reasons why they love Fritz, because it, even though it's more expensive maybe than just buying the naturally mined product, it's more reproducible over a long period of time. Um, but they also, again, they're more expensive. In pottery, the main place that we use fritz are in low are as fluxes or low melting ingredient in earthenware and cone six glazes. They're generally not required in cone 10 glazes because there are a lot of other fluxes that we can use when we get to the higher cone 10 temperatures that become active. So we generally don't need something that, that will melt at that much of a lower temperature. Um, some fritz, as a matter of fact, are essentially earthenware glazes by themselves. They, they, they basically would produce a clear, a clear colorless glass, and they melt in the earthenware range, cone 06, 07, 05, that sort of range. And so you'd have a clear glaze just with the frit itself. And then if you added that as an ingredient to a higher firing glaze, such as a cone 6, it becomes one of the fluxes in the glaze. Okay. All right, ash glazes, the next topic I wanted to talk about. Um, cone six, the ash glazes are basically cone six and cone ten glazes that primarily contain wood ash as a flux. Wood ash actually is a really great source of flux of the fluxing elements, the fluxing ingredients, primarily calcium and potassium. And there's also there's always a little bit of sodium and some magnesium. These are all when we talked earlier a number of sessions ago, we talked about some of the introductory chemistry. And we pointed out on the periodic table. Uh, there are certain elements that act as fluxes, and sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, barium, strontium, those are the fluxes. So the nice thing is that wood ash is very rich 
in two of the most important fluxes, calcium and potassium. So, the, and ash glazes, the reason why people like them or, or talk about them as a separate category is they have, they have un, two unique characteristics. They all tend to be very runny, but they also, when they melt, they, tend, they, they don't just melt and form like a sheet of melt. They tend to form strings, or what are called rivulets, that flow down the, the, the surface of a pot. And I've got a good example here. This is the surface of a pot, or a piece of a pot, that, that shows, this, this was an ash glaze up, up to about here. This is the ash glaze, and then it flowed down. This is very typical of the structure that forms with an ash glaze. It forms, they're called rivulets, and they're like little stringy flow patterns. And this is due basically to the chemistry of the, the ash glaze. It has a unique chemistry. It has a low viscosity. That means that it, it's, it's very thin and watery when it, when it melts. But it also has a high surface tension, which means that the glaze wants to be, it's attracted to itself. So when it melts and it's very runny, instead of just flowing down the surface of the pot in sort of a sheet like a waterfall, it tends to pull together and form these strings. So, the, and this is the, so this is the reason why people like these, because of this, this flowing characteristic. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps new listeners find the show. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates as new episodes are released. And if you'd like to support the video and podcast production of the Potter's Roundtable, become a patron. Go to patreon.com and search for The Potter's Roundtable. Your support will help us achieve our goal of creating a digital library spanning the ceramic arts for use by educators and artists alike. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. And there are really there are two types of, of ash glazes. There are true ash glazes that, can, that actually contain ash, and it generally is wood ash. Different ashes contain different ingredients, and for instance, other kinds of ashes from other kinds of plants, such as grass, don't contain fluxes as much. So when we're talking about ash glazes, we generally mean some kind of wood ash. And the second kind are what are called fake ash glazes, and these are ash glazes that actually don't contain any ash, but by mixing the proper combination of ingredients, the proper oxides and raw materials, you can create the same composition as if it had an ash in it, and therefore they behave the same. So very often, you, when you just, if you look at a fired fake ash glaze, you would never know that it didn't actually have ash in it, because it behaves the same. Okay. Dennis, how, how are we doing time-wise? Would that be a good point to stop, or? Okay, that's fine. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll keep going. Okay, so the next term I'd like to talk about, we're going to go back and return to talking about clay a little bit, and that's flocculation. This is a term that's really misunderstood, beside being misspelled. Flocculation. What this refers to is the clumping up of clay particles in water. Basically that simple. And in glazes, we actually want flocculation. A lot of glazes contain clay as an ingredient. So for glazes, we actually want flocculation of the clay that's in the glaze ingredients. Because when you, and what we mean by that is when you flocculate a glaze or you flocculate the clay particles, you create a certain structure of the clay particles. And I've got a model here for it. This is sort of what a flocculated clay would look like. Now, now again, in a, 
in a, in a, in a, in a, clay, in a glaze, the clay wouldn't be as dense and packed as this. This is like a lump of clay, so the clay is really dense and solid. But when you put the clay in water to make a glaze, it would be more like this, where the clay is kind of suspended in the water or the particles have separated a little bit. So when I flocculate the glaze, what I'm actually doing is I'm actually changing the, 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 the surface of the clay particles actually have electrical charges on them because of the, the atoms that are on the surface. And when I'm flocculating the glaze, I'm actually changing the char or affecting the charges on the surface so that they tend to want to be attracted edges to, edges to sides, and they form this open sort of, I'm going to call it sort of house of cards structure. Well, this is great for a glaze because what this does is when you, when you, when you get the clay particles in the glaze to assume this kind of a structure, what it does is this helps keep all the other ingredients in suspension. Because in these, in these spaces between these other particles are all the other ingredients of the glaze as well as water. So this framework, or this, this it's called the gel structure, actually helps keep everything in suspension. And also, even when it does settle out, the clay particles still have somewhat this structure. So it's much more easily stirred and broken up. Instead of forming a hard, like cement-like sediment on the bottom of the glaze, it tends to be easier to break up and, 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 and do this and form this structure. The other thing that, that's really useful about flocculating a glaze is it also eliminates runs and drips when you're glazing. Because if the glaze has this structure, let's say I dip a pot in a glaze that's flocculated and I get a layer of this wet glaze on the surface, it's much easier for the water to move through this structure and be absorbed into the pot and therefore deposit the clay on the surface. So in other words, the layer of glaze doesn't sort of block the water from being absorbed. This open structure actually makes it easier for the water to move through and be absorbed and hold the glaze onto the pot. So that's, this, there's a real advantage to having a glaze in this flocculated condition. In order to flocculate a glaze or to create the structure, what we, we do, we add an acid or something chemically that acts like an acid. It may not technically be literally an acid, but things can have acid-like properties. And if we add something that acts like an acid to the, to the glaze or to the liquid, it actually it can induce this flocculation. The best one that I know of that to do that is simply Epsom salt. They, there are commercial products that are sold to do this that are, that are flocculants. Um, but this, I, don't, I can't think of a better one than just, than just plain old Epsom salt. Um, it's normally used, it's sold in grocery stores and it's sold in pharmacies. It typically comes, might come in a container like this. This whole container, this is about you and a hundred of your friends' lifetime supply of Epsom salt and it costs about four bucks. Um, and it's, the, it's typically sold like as, because like soak your feet. It says a soaking aid for minor sprains and bruises. So it's, it's mainly, you, it's, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time. Um, but this is great because when you put, a, when you put it a little bit in water and make a solution of it, and it's always, you always use it as a solution, um, it, make, it, it brings about the flocculation. And it really, the only thing it, it contributes, a, it's a tiny little bit of magnesium to the glaze, which doesn't have any effect at all. This is, this is the, if, if you're interested, the formula for Epsom salt is magnesium sulfate. It's MgSO4, and it actually contains seven molecules of water. So it's nothing that's going to contaminate. The sulfate part burns off when you fire the glaze, and it adds a tiny little bit of magnesium, which is insignificant. So you don't have to worry. It's nothing you have to worry about. But the one thing I would mention is I don't recommend including, I'll see, I've seen glaze recipes where the Epsom salt is actually included on the recipe, 
And I disagree with that because you, when a glaze assumes the opposite condition, when it's less than, than, than well flocculated, there's no way to, to know ahead of time how much Epsom salt or flocculant you're going to need to bring it back. And you, so usually when you're adding Epsom salt or you're flocculating a glaze, you do it by feel or by the appearance of the glaze. You add a little bit to the glaze. I think what we're going to do is um, we're, we're going to probably do a video sometime of how you actually flocculate a glaze and what it looks like, which I think would be a good idea. But you add a little bit, and then you look at the change in the glaze, and you little, add a little bit more. You, there's no way to tell ahead of time how much you're going to add. Um, so I generally think, uh, the other thing is also when you're making up a glaze and there's clay in the glaze, most of the time when you first make up the glaze, the clay will be naturally flocculated. So you don't need to add a flocculant at the beginning. What, when you usually need to add one is later on after the glaze has sat for a while, and then you might need to add one. So I generally, if, there's a, if, they, if they include Epsom salt in the recipe, I, just, I, I always ignore it. If you'd like to see a video version of this presentation, just head out to YouTube and search for Washington Street Studios. Okay, one more term I'd like to talk about that relates to these terms that we're talking about here is deflocculation. So this is, oh, I, I was going to not have to write it all over again, but let me erase this. D flocculation. When glazes sit, for, and the main, the main way we run into this is with glazes. When glazes sit for a while, there are certain ingredients in the glaze that can reverse the flocculation effect and cause what's called deflocculation. Basically what happens in that is, if this is flocculation, when it deflocculates, the particles separate, and it actually it changes the, the, the charges on the, the electrical charges on the surface of the clay particles are changing, and they're becoming all the same all over. So what happens is the particles repel one another. You know how like charges repel? So what happens is, instead of wanting to be attracted partially like this, they repel one another, and, and so the clay particles don't want to form any kind of a structure. And so in a, in a, in a glaze, that what would happen would be this structure would break up and then the glaze would tend to settle out because I don't have this, this holding the particles up anymore. So, um, and typically what happens also when it does is it forms this very, and I'm sure everybody has probably seen this, this very heavy, dense, almost concrete-like sediment at the bottom of the bucket. That's a good indication that the glaze has become deflocculated. There are certain glaze ingredients that are particularly that contribute to this a lot. And the main one that I'm familiar with is nepheline cyanide. Um, also, sodium-containing fritz. So the real culprit for this is sodium. Sodium and also potassium tend to change the charges. They a little bit dissolves in the water. It doesn't take a lot. And it changes the charges and causes a deflocculation. And nepheline cyanide, for example, that's a rock. That's a powdered rock. But actually, with time, a little bit of it dissolves in the water, a tiny little bit enough so that the sodium gets in the water and causes the deflocculation. And the same thing happens with, with fritz that contain a lot of sodium. A little bit of this, even though it's glass, a little bit of it dissolves in the water, just a trace, but that's enough to change the charges and deflocculate it. There's a, there's a general rule that we, can, that we think about with respect to these, and that is, it's, and it helps to remember this, that you want flocculated glazes and deflocculated slips. And when you deflocculate a slip, 
what you're actually doing is you're reducing the amount of water that you need to get a certain consistency. Well, this is good because when you, when you deflocculate a clay, the clay might look more like this. The little particles, there's no particular structure. They just all settle out. Now, they may not actually stick together because they're actually sort of, there's a little bit of repulsion between them, but they're all sort of separate and they just kind of settle out in a pile. You don't have this kind of an open structure anymore. Well, this is actually good for a slip because if you think about it, with a slip, if you have a lot of water in a slip, whether it's a joining slip or whether you're slip casting, you're casting something, if you had a lot of water, that means you're going to get a lot of shrinkage when the, when the material dries. And if you get a lot of shrinkage, you're opening yourself up to possible cracking, right? Drying cracking. So the less shrinkage that a slip undergoes, the better you are. So the perfect, that's a perfect thing to have a deflocculated slip. You don't have as much water. The slip can still be fluid, but you don't need as much water to make it fluid. Therefore, the chances of it cracking when it dries are less. Okay? So, so it's, it's good to have a deflocculated joining slip, and when you're, when you're slip casting, when you're pouring a, a heavy slip into a mold, basically they're always deflocculated to get that condition. And to, add, to deflocculate a slip, what you do is you add sort of the opposite. You add what's chemically called a base or an alkaline material, typically in very small amounts, generally, for instance, like less than a half a percent. And again, you sue it. There's no, there's no precise amount. It depends on the clay and the conditions as to what you add. But you might add something like sodium silicate or soda ash, sodium carbonate. Remember, see, there's the sodium coming in. in. In the case of flocculation, it was a problem. But now we're intentionally adding the sodium because it's helping to do the deflocculation. And again, Darvan 7 is a really good deflocculant. Okay, okay well, that's the second episode of our, of our topic on, on pottery mysteries. We have one or two more, depending on how late, long they go. But anyway, so we're going to wrap this one up with this one, and then we'll continue. But we hope this discussion today has been useful. And again, if this was a lot of information or too much information too fast, and you'd like to hear it again, go to our podcast version. And just go, you know, look for the Potter's Roundtable on your favorite podcast platform, and you can hear the, the, audit, the auditory part of it. If you enjoyed the presentation, please like it and subscribe to our channel and share it with your friends. It makes it easier for our videos to get found on YouTube. If you didn't like it, by the way, tell us why. Maybe we can do better next time. Um, also, check out our website, www.hfclay.com. Well, we really want to thank our patrons for supporting our educational efforts. And if you'd like to help us, consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com and look for the Potter's Roundtable. We have five options, five different patronage levels that you could subscribe to. And we decided, instead of naming them the typical gold, silver, bronze, platinum, we decided to give them clay names. So the first, the first level we have is, is what we're calling a clay patron, and that's for a dollar a month. And in, in exchange, you get recognition on our patron appreciation page in, our, in all of our videos. The second level that we have, we're calling a BISC level, which is um, $5 a month. And again, you get the recognition, plus you get a Potter's Roundtable sticker that you can put on your laptop or wherever you like, or on your forehead. Um, works like this. Um, the third level that we have is called the Earthenware level. That's $10 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get a transcript of any available episode that we have every month, a transcript of the, of the, of the presentations. The, the stoneware level is the next one. That's for $20 a month. You get all the previous benefits, plus you get one of our Potter's Roundtable t-shirts that looks like this. And the final level that we have is what we're calling the porcelain patron level, which is for $50 a month. 
And again, you get all the previous benefits. And you also get a handmade by our by Dennis, our, our one of our founding members here, a handmade uh, pot, Potter's Roundtable mug. So we'd appreciate any kind of support you can provide. The next topic in the series is going to be a continuation of this same topic um, uh, with the Pottery Mysteries. Um, and we want to thank you today for visiting with us. The Potter's Roundtable is brought to you by Washington Street Studios and our patrons. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and tell your friends. If you want to learn more about Washington Street Studios and shared studio memberships, please visit our website at www.hfclay.com. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time on the Potter's Roundtable.